0: Uh-huh. Yeah. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Few institutions are more important for the global direction of FinTech than the Bank for International Settlements. Known as the Central Bank for central banks, the BIS has evolved from an institution supporting the payment of German war debts into a global institution, central to international monetary stability. Now, throughout its 90-year history, the BIS has gone through varying periods of reinvention and is now undergoing a new transition and establishing itself as one of the world's foremost fintech authorities. And this new role is apparent everywhere nowadays at this international organization including in its annual economic report, fresh off the press today from Basel. For this reason, I'm especially happy to welcome Benoit Couré onto the show to talk about a special chapter from the report and its very interesting observations on central bank digital currencies. Now, Benoit, a former member of the European Central Bank's executive board, is now the head of the BIS's innovation hub which is tasked with leading a new global effort by central banks to research the benefits of FinTech. As such, his insight is critical to understanding not only the technology driving central bank digital currencies, but also how the international regulatory community is responding to their prospective risks and rewards. Benoit, thanks so much for making it on to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Chris. The BIS is such an interesting institution, in part because its role has changed along with the very definition of money. I mean, from the time at which the world operated on uh, the gold standard to then the 1970s when money took the form and shape of uh, fiat currencies. Uh, and, and now there's another transition arising in this new digital age. Um, so against uh, that, Backdrop. I think it'd be really interesting just to talk about how it is that the BIS came to focus on
1: fintech and central bank digital currencies. Going back to gold, I mean, we could go back to five thousands thousands of years ago when our money was actually uh, stones and uh, and uh, and jewels and uh, and maybe shells and uh, maybe commodities. And uh, the point here is that payments have moved uh, continuously with the times. So we've been there already. Uh, we call it fintech. I call it uh, innovation in payments, uh, technical change uh, in central banking. And we've been there on and on. And so it's not, it's not really new that central banks have to deal with, uh, with new technologies. We've been doing that. We'll continue doing that. And the BIS being at the center of the uh, central banking community uh, has a duty to uh, not only to follow, but even to lead and to help and to help our community. So we want to help our community uh, understand what's going on. Uh, scout innovation wherever it uh, it emerges, and uh, take uh, make the best use out of it uh, for uh, for what we have to do for the public. And so we really see ourselves as a not really as a think tank, uh, but as a place, as a laboratory, as a place where you can experiment and uh, see what works, what doesn't work, or give it back to uh, our, our members, to central banks, so that they can decide uh, how they want to uh, deploy it uh, in their jurisdictions. We want to be at the heart of this process. It's really interesting to see central banks,
0: you know, involved in this process. You know, when you think about the, the history of money and the story of money, and we had Barry Eichengreen onto the show a little while back. We've had IMF officials. You know, the, the story of money is sometimes driven from the top, from government. Sometimes it's driven from the habits and behaviors of, of, of everyday people. You know, it, but invariably, it does impact what a central bank does and and you know from your perspective over at, at the BIS when those changes do come and when you are at the forefront of those changes where do you see first the shift to digitization coming from you know is is this, is this really a shift that's coming from the top uh, or is it coming from somewhere else and, and does it matter from you know the perspective of a central bank and the BIS whether or not it's a, a market driven Again, uh, based innovation or or uh, its innovation from some of your members.
1: Yeah, well, I, I guess I guess any any scholar of, of innovation would tell you that uh, innovation is not a continuous process, right? It's it's lumpy. It's lumpy. It's uh, uh it's uh, it's about leaping forward, right? Uh, it's about uh, innovation waves, and uh, and we so we've seen innovation waves in payments, just as in any other industry, um. Uh, I would say the last one was probably 20 years ago when we all moved to RTGS systems, real-time growth settlement. And now we are just seeing another wave of innovation coming. Uh, it is driven by technology. Uh, it is, uh, I would say it is driven by the market. Um, it has been driven primarily by the availability of technology, that of digital technology that helps improve uh, the interface uh, with customers. So it started from the um, front end of the market, the interface with customers, and we've seen all these, you know, mobile payment interfaces, QR codes. I mean, everything that we're now familiar with, contactless payments, etc., which uh, which started as niche and very techie products, and now are everywhere in our shops. Uh, so we, we've uh, we're we past that stage, and we've seen that wave of innovation evolving uh, itself, moving from the front end to the back end. And that's really a new development that has prompted a reaction uh, on our side, on the side of central banks. And that's about stablecoins coming in. Primarily, it started with with blockchain uh, and and Bitcoin. And it's going on now with stablecoins. That is uh, private sector initiatives that create uh, closed-loop environments, right? So it's not only about improving the customer experience in payments, um, which is now accepted and everywhere. It's about creating new environments, new ecosystems. And we had to react to that because we believe that, uh, that's about the stability and the efficiency of the system. And I can elaborate, but uh, that's, that's really how, how, I, how, how I would see the last, the last, uh, few years, uh, in the payment universe. And now we have a new shock coming, which is, uh, COVID-19, which might be another push into digitalization of the payment universe. Because we see, uh, we see contactless payments uh, exploding everywhere. Uh, we see trade getting digital, obviously, when people are at home, so they want to buy remotely. Uh, and that itself can be a further push to favor, uh, uh, digital payments. So, um, a lot of it has been led by the industry. That's true. That's true. But we believe that as public operators and as, as, uh, kind of, uh, uh, stewards of of, of of public goods values, we have to, uh, not only to follow, but we, we have a say on the direction. And that's where we come in.
0: Well, I think that's a great springboard to your uh, new annual economic report just out. And it's always a matter of enormous interest to the international community and to market participants. And uh, with it fresh off the press, maybe you can walk us through some of the top observations that the report is making and uh, really what you think those observations mean for the development of the uh, central bank digital currency projects going on around the world.
1: So the, uh, the report, which is chapter three of the annual economic report of the BIS, um, it's, uh, it's about uh, how central banks can support and help along this journey of uh, uh, making payments digital and what we find is that there are different ways central banks can help. We can help as operators of core infrastructures, which we've been doing. Well, RTGS systems are a good example. Well, not, not all RTGS systems are operated by central banks, as a matter of fact, but uh, most of them are. And, uh, and here we have a duty to improve and to ride the wave of innovation and, uh, and make our own systems as efficient and as fast as possible. Um, we have a responsibility as overseers of payment systems, so that's more the regulatory or even the legal side. But for in- just to give an obvious example, uh, cybersecurity, uh, the risk of fraud in payments, which we've seen in the case of the of the of the of the Bangladeshis, for instance, that was a good example a few years ago. So we've got to make sure that these anything that comes out of this innovation wave will be as safe as resilient. Uh, as uh, uh, As will protect clients as as well as 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 the previous technology, and that's part of our responsibility and finally, we have a responsibility as catalyst that is we want to be able to nudge the system towards what we think is the best for customers uh, and for uh, and for the public good, and that's of course the most delicate of all. Roles because we could nudge it in the wrong direction, right? Uh, and, and many, many, uh, many people in the market would think that they, they know where to go, right? They don't need us to, to tell them where to go, which is, which is basically true. It's basically true. So we don't want to stifle innovation. We want to uh, let innovation flourish. And what's going on today in the payment world is quite, quite uh, amazing. And it's a lot of positives for the, for, 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 for customers and for the system. But we want to be sure that it goes in the right direction when it comes to reaching all citizens, for instance. So that's where financial inclusion comes in, right? And not all uh, tech companies have an incentive to uh, support financial inclusion, so sometimes we have to tell them. And we also want the system to be as efficient as possible. As a lawyer, I've always said when I talk to my economist friends that regulators supervising
0: financial innovation have always faced a trilemma, a situation where they aspire for you know, at at least three things, but usually achieve uh, only two. And that trilemma has been this multifaceted aspiration for market integrity, um, financial innovation, and and finally, clear rules, both for those who uh, are being regulated and also for consumers who may rely on clarity to understand to what degree they are indeed being protected. And Countries really end up in very different places as to where they stand on this three-pronged risk-reward continuum. And and this puts the BIS uh, in in a highly interesting terrain uh, that it has to navigate. And uh, looking at your annual economic report, which covers so many countries and is quite rich in global detail, where does exactly the United States stand uh, especially when it comes to its place on the innovation curve?
1: Yeah, well, the BIS, BIS is a global organization, right? So we, are, it's a, we have the, the luxury to be able to pick examples, good practices, inspiring initiatives from everywhere in the world. And uh, what you see in the payment field is that very often the most advanced are not necessarily uh, the so-called advanced economies, right? We've seen a lot of leapfrogging over kind of antiquated payment systems, uh, giving an opportunity to, uh, to lower income economies to, uh, to leapfrog and to, uh, actually, uh, uh, be, uh, be ahead of the curve in terms of payments. Whenever I give speeches in payment conference, I, I very often say that the reasonable objective for G7 countries is to, uh, is to catch up on Kenya, right? And that's a reasonable objective, <laughs> which is true. When and you- that isn't easy at all. That's, that, that's actually a very, that, uh, that, that, that's actually pretty tough. So yes, yeah, there is a lot going on, and in the in the, uh, in, the uh, in the report, we try to give examples of of what's of what's going on. I think it's fair to say that uh, the uh, the trilemma you just described uh, has to be addressed and will be addressed differently in different places, because different places have different um, financial structures. Uh, for instance, the role, the importance of banks in the payment uh, um, uh, architecture is different in different countries. They have different legal traditions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there is no single template here. When it comes to the U.S., I see a lot going on. There is a little bit of a paradox in the U.S. that the U.S. has a, obviously, a a thriving, very active uh, fintech industry, a leading fintech industry, and is at the heart of of innovation in the payment world today. At the same time, uh, some of the core infrastructures in the U.S. have been lagging. I don't think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's embarrassing in any, in any way for, uh, vis-a-vis the Fed to say that. I mean, the Fed has, for instance, decided on uh, upgrading uh, the, um, and, and moving to a fast payment uh, architecture. Uh, and so they, they've been lagging down that road. Uh, we've seen countries like, say, Australia leading the, leading the way. Europe has come later. Uh, the U.S. are now coming they are catching up there and uh, there is so much going on in the US uh, fintech that i'm i'm absolutely sure that the US will be uh, at the uh, at the leading edge of that uh, of that journey and the fed is as the fed is very active really so we have uh, we have intense uh, relations with the fed uh, and uh, and whatever we do at the bis in terms of innovation uh, i'm sure this will be uh, very closely coordinated with the fed well, you know, obviously one of the big issues
0: and something that you've been focusing on and you've already mentioned is this question of not just the real-time sort of payments or instantaneous payments, but but central bank digital currencies. And, you know, when I was looking at the report, I was struck by one of the titles of a graph in your report, which was CBDC, an increasingly likely option. And, you know, I, I maybe I, we can follow up a little bit on, on that strain. Um, you know, when you when you canvass uh, sort of the global activities in sort of CBDC pilot projects and the like, you know, what's your view looking forward? Um, you know, uh, and, and at the facts as they stand, um, you know, what do you see as the state of affairs one, two, and even four years from now as to the prevalence and 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 uh, introduction of, of, of CBDCs?
1: So when I when I said earlier that uh, different countries have, are in different places when it comes to their payment architecture, I think CBDC is a case in point. I'm pretty sure that CBDC is, is the, the direction that we're taking, and I'm pretty sure that it will happen. It will happen in different ways, in different places, for good reasons, right? Uh, because some of the key architecture choices uh, on... Uh, you know, how much do we want CBDC to reach uh, uh, clients, to reach a retail? How much competition do we want in that field? Uh, which kind of uh, uh, privacy regime do we want around it, etc.? Answers will be different in different places because we have different legal frameworks and different expectations. But what we want to achieve, and I'm not only speaking of the BIS, but more broadly of the central banking community, is a, um, a commonality of views about it. So we're not going to to go down this journey at the same pace and we're not starting from the same place, but uh, we want to do it together because we want to learn from what the others are doing and because we have key consistency issues across the global uh, financial system. We don't want to do CBDC in a way that will create fragmentation. The, uh, the system is already fragmented. Um, Payment systems in the past have been built uh, very often, if not always, uh, based on, on, on domestic views, right? And I can, I can so moving away from the US, I'm a European, right? I've, I've spent eight years in Frankfurt uh, dealing with, with, with payments at the ECB. I can tell you that the European landscape is very fragmented when it comes to retail payments. Even, even though we have a single rule of law and a single market, etc., it remains very fragmented. And so we don't want to add to fermentation, so we want to make sure that uh, wherever we go we know what the others are doing, and we'll impose the key uh, requirements uh, on what we are doing so that it uh, uh, so that it works to, as a system so that CBDC can work as a system and that's about uh, consistency uh, interoperability, etc and we can go into the details
0: absolutely and 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 you know what you've identified in terms of this this desire for consistency and and uh, interoperability. You know uh, that conversation, which we'll we'll delve into, is is happening against the backdrop of very interesting domestic conversations about competition, uh, competitiveness, not just of economies but of currencies and the international monetary system. And um, varying experts and leaders uh, are, are trying to explore what uh, either digitization or tokenization would mean for their market share, if one will, in, in, in the international monetary system. Um, to what extent uh, have you seen or, or, or heard these kinds of conversations? And how do they impact the, the overall aspirations of, if not uniformity— at least interoperability?
1: So I'm not seeing it too much as being a, uh, a competition, right? A, uh, a race between nations. Uh, because uh, because that's, about the, that's about how the international monetary system works, right? And that has always been, at least since 1945, right? Since 1944, actually, when, we, uh, when the IMF was created, uh, we've always had quite a lot of cooperation around the international monetary system because we want it to be stable and we want it to work. So uh, you, can, you can have a technological angle into CBDC. You can have the um, domestic payment angle into CBDC. You can also have that international angle into CBDC. Uh, and, uh, and that's about the system being stable. And so we all have lots of incentives to uh, to work together. And as you know, for just to give an example, uh, we have this working group among uh, uh, some of the major central banks Bank of England, uh, ECB, the Fed is also there. The Bank of Japan is there. Bank of Canada, uh, and uh, the uh, the uh, Swiss National Bank and the Riksbank in uh, in Stockholm, and that's a group I am co-chairing with John Conley from the Bank of England, and we are writing a report on how to make it work together. Right. So I see a lot of uh, a lot of collaboration around this uh, around this discussion.
0: Delving a little bit deeper into the concept of, of CBDC, you know, uh, you've, you've observed, I, I think, keenly and wisely that CBDCs are, are, are going to be slightly different based on sort of the starting point of any particular uh, country. Um, when you do think about the idea of making sure that everyone is on the same page— both from a systemic risk perspective um, and also in uh, a market integrity perspective on the one hand, but also from the standpoint of interoperability, what kinds of sort of designed features do you think are especially important when it comes to speaking to, again, this, the, you know, the, the dual sides of interoperability on the one hand, but also um, risk mitigation and market integrity on the other?
1: To start with, the key consideration is that interop- there are two dimensions to interoperability. We're speaking of interoperability between CBDC and the rest of the payment system, right? Domestically. Uh, and that's extremely important because we want CBDC, whenever we, it will, co- it comes, right? We want it also to be, we want it to be useful to support uh, a good function, good functioning of, the, of domestic payment systems, right? I, I very much see uh, domestic payments as an ecosystem including in terms of digital currencies so you can have an ecosystem where you have cbdc and you have different kinds of uh, private digital currencies uh, and or payment or means of payments and they can serve different customer bases or they can serve different functions or they can be programmable right some of them can be programmable and then they serve particular fun- particular functions and i very much see cbdc being at the heart of the system and also contributing by itself by by its mere existence to the interoperability of the system because any any means of payment can be converted into cbdc right and that's a, that's a no, that's a traditional function of money actually <laughs> to help conversion right across different means of payment and 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 that has to be true also in the digital world so that's the first thing and then you have cross border interoperability which is to be honest more challenging uh, because um, it's not so easy to create global standards. We do have global standards. We have uh, ISO 2022 when it comes to, to messaging. Uh, we we can have other technical standards, uh, but uh, it it takes time. Uh, it it will take a lot of cooperation with the industry to uh, to um, uh, to produce that kind of standards. And even though, as I said, I see a lot of goodwill and uh, and cooperation spirit among the, among central banks. You might fight political hurdles. Let's be, let's be clear about it. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the spirit of, of the time, the zeitgeist, is not for international corp- corporate cooperation. Let's be clear about that. And so uh we, we're not going to have a legal an international legal framework for CBDCs. That's not going to happen, right? So what we want to identify is a kind of minimal technical requirements to make it work internationally without asking too much from parliaments and politicians because they will not follow us. They will not go there.
0: One of the really interesting aspects of the CBDC conversation is one that you just pointed to right now, and it it, it is the idea of this change in the definition of money as more than just a payment rail, right, or or the product of a payment rail, but to, to think about money itself as a base layer infrastructure supporting different kinds of, of, of applications, right? I mean, not not only this idea of the interoperability between the different kinds of financial services, but, but also in the idea that uh, potentially you can develop some kind of infrastructure against which other kinds of authorized either government agencies or market participants can build um varying kinds of 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 financial services and that th- that is uh, an exciting uh prospect and it does uh seem at the same time to really uh push uh central banks right in terms of their traditional uh means of oversight uh and how they practice their oversight and 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 uh really the the swath of potential uh, responsibilities that that they could have as they build out um, that particular model, uh, you, you know, in, in in the report, which is really a rich report, and it and it's covering many different areas of of uh, the payments infrastructure. Are there any particular aspects, you know, that 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 would be useful or that are essential when one looks at really the most ambitious? ideas um, tied to CBDCs, you know, the, the, this, this ecosystem um, prospect.
1: I think you, you, you made a great point, Chris, Chris that it has, you, you have to think of the system as a system. And digital money is, uh, is a kind of uh, basic layer for a system, where, but you may, need, you, you may need other kind of uh, public infrastructures to make it work, right? And it's, it will be a big question for central banks looking forward uh, whether they want to do it themselves or whether they uh, want to defer to other public authorities or maybe to uh, devolve it to the private sector. I think that will be one of the key questions central banks will have to solve in the, in the, uh, in the coming years. And one example is uh, identity, digital identity. So if you think of the payment system as a stack with different rails, right? So you have a payment rail. I would argue that you need a core payment rail which is a public rail which is settled in uh, in central bank money and which uh, which brings central bank money everywhere in the system which is a key condition for stability but that's not enough you need for any dig- digital payment infrastructure you need a uh, an identity function uh, and uh, if you want it to be universal and open you need um, some kind of a of a public identity rail and and as you, as we know, some countries have been very successful doing it. Like India, Singapore uh, are good examples. How do you do that? Do you want the central bank in a given country to do the public identity rail? I don't think so. I mean, we're not. That's not our job, right? Uh, so, whom do you want to partner with uh, to do that, uh, etc.? These are key questions which we will have to solve relatively shortly because that's a condition for the system to work. And once you've solved it, you uh, unleash many advantages for the private sector to to plug in and make and make the best use of these rails uh, if you have this payment rail if you have this identity rail if you have some kind of open banking principle with good apis then any operator can just plug in and you know uh, use the data exploit the data and uh, improve customer service uh, and i think that's really the way forward Uh, some countries are more advanced than others. Uh, Singapore is clearly more advanced than either the US or or Europe.
0: One of those options of of sort of devolving things at least partially to the private sector um, is is one that, that... obviously is going to uh, generate lots of interesting policy questions and one of the things that the report really focuses on and spends a lot of time sort of thinking about and and, and is this question of platform economics you know not just sort of the network effects or the dominance if one will if if, if the government sort of gets involved in uh, sort of payments um, and and, and uh, quasi banking um, uh, services but also sort of like what the potential role of market participants could and would be, uh, especially from the standpoint of sort of uh, anti-trust, sort of market power perspectives. From that perspective, uh, you know, From this emphasis on, on platform economics and, and the participation of private sector participants, um, maybe you could provide your thoughts on, on, on what a central bank or other public authority uh, should be keeping their, li- their eyes out on, particularly when one looks at the build-out of a particular ecosystem operating on top of a, a central bank digital currency.
1: So it doesn't have to be the the, uh, the central bank doing it, right? Because lots of what you're mentioning, which is very important, is about antitrust, and you know that's what competition authorities do, um, or, or maybe even uh, DOJ's. I mean, it's so it's not necessarily uh, the, uh, the 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 place where we want to be, but certainly what what central bankers want to see uh, is a uh, an industry which is open enough to promote innovation, not to stifle innovation. Uh, and uh, to promote competition and to uh, and to make payments uh, cost-effective. I think the, one of the key uh, rationals for what we're doing today is that we've seen the payment industry uh, kind of uh, getting used to a structure where uh, huge rents were being accrued to or appropriated by, by some operators, including banks you You have a very nice chart in the uh, in the report that that shows you that whenever uh, bank margins are higher, payments are more expensive right so the story is just you know banks using their market power to make payments more more expensive at the expense of the uh, of the customer and that's bad that's bad right so um you you mentioned the, you mentioned this uh, this uh, platform structure what what economists call two sided markets right Where you you have lots of synergies, you have lots of externalities which are positive for everyone, but the risk is that you create lots of rents, uh, and uh, at the end uh, you you end up being hostile to competition. So you need some pressure uh, to uh, to keep competitive forces alive, Uh, and that's what we've seen, for instance, in the in the in the in the card industry, right? In the in the card scheme industry, uh, in many places, including in Europe. There have been caps to uh, interchange fees among uh, among card schemes as a way to uh, as a way to um, to protect the customer, and I'm not saying we want to regulate everything, right? It has to remain a free market because that's where innovation comes from. But you need to put limits to the uh, the amount of rents that uh, operators can extract. And what what's really new in that industry is big tech coming to the uh, to the industry, right? joining the game. And so the risk is, is even higher than before. Both, both The stakes are higher. The possible um, uh, advantages from, from having these networks are huge for the customer. So being able to build a payment network out of a, of a social network, I can see the attraction. I can see where, why, it's, why it can be good for the customer. There is nothing wrong in doing that. But there is also a risk that uh, these guys will have too much market power when it comes to Uh, pricing, and when it comes also to using uh, client data. And there you need to protect the customer.
0: I guess I'll I'll, I'll end sort of looking forward and sort of tying a couple of these um, of your observations together. I mean, I'll I'll return again to that wonderful slide of the uh, likely option. You know, there have been lots of reports, uh, obviously, that that China is actively rolling out um, or at least piloting uh, its central bank digital currency, a digital yuan, if one will, in at least four different cities. Uh, it appears at least uh, to be following a, a a system of building out and and an ecosystem. if If not in, in in China, at least elsewhere, are you getting a sense as to how pilot projects are working out thus far? I mean, when when we're reading reports, uh, uh, whether in China and elsewhere, what can we discern about how advanced these this this central bank experimentation uh, actually is?
1: Well, what I see is uh, is everyone proceeding with quite a lot of caution, right? So even though, even China, I mean, there are clearly, I mean, they are experimenting uh, a pilot. They are very advanced technically, but uh, they they proceed with a lot of caution on the on the regulatory and on the political side, right? So they will they will they will think twice about it be, be before pressing the pushing the button uh, and uh, and uh, and making making it available across the country. Because because that's about the nature that's about money that's about whom we want the central bank to be liable to right so these are key questions for the stability of the currency these are key questions for the way we do monetary policy and these are key political questions so I see a lot of enthusiasm and uh, an activity to build pilots prototypes to experiment I also see a lot of caution when it comes to uh, actually doing it because at the end of the journey. Uh, It has to be a political decision and it's not a a decision a central bank can take
0: alone. Benoit, thank you so very much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Right after
0: our interview, after the recording had stopped in our initial conversation, I followed up with Benoit to get a sense of just what else we might be expecting from the BIS now that the report is out. My guess is there will be more than a few headlines coming out of the bank and I wanted our listeners to know what to keep an eye out for, and here's what he said. So, so now you've 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 finished this uh, report. Um, it, it's obviously always, as I had mentioned, a, a matter of intense interest around uh, the United States. So, what looking forward, what exactly do you have planned, particularly um, for uh, the BIS fintech hub, um, either as relating to central bank digital currencies or to other um, aligned areas?
1: So as you, as you know, we're building this innovation hub, which is uh, spread across a number of uh, jurisdictions. Uh, so it's not only in Basel, where the BIS is uh, headquartered, but it's also in Singapore uh, and in Hong Kong and in Zurich. And we'll, uh, we will actually will soon announce new locations. Uh, in, on different continents. Uh, so, uh, you, uh, yeah, just, uh, just watch, watch us and we'll, we'll know, you'll, you'll know more within a few days about it.
0: And just to note, you know, you are always welcome to uh, come back to the show uh, to make even further announcements as to uh, these, these, these locations. Yes.
1: We'll, we'll be helping this, uh, the, this conversation on CBDC. We'll be supporting that conversation. We have an important project in Zurich on uh, wholesale CBDC um, that is how to bring central bank money into a tokenized market. Um, and, um, and, that's, and so we'll, we'll, we'll be developing a proof of concept around this, uh, this idea. Uh, we have a, an important project in, uh, in Singapore around uh, payment stacks. So the, exactly the discussion we were having on identity rails, payment rails, and how to put that together. Um, and we have uh, work on tokens more generally, in particular when it comes to trade finance. Where we have a very nice project in Hong Kong on uh, DLT-based uh, trade finance, also with a cross-border perspective. So you see that we are not—we don't have a mandate to build a CBDC, but we are shedding lights on some technical aspects of it, uh, and we are and we are supporting our our membership, uh, answering their questions.
0: The Bank for International Settlements is one of the most adaptable and adaptive institutions in the world. And it's for good reason. As money changes, so does the role of institutions charged with creating it. And this in turn pushes the international regulatory community and the BIS in particular to respond accordingly. The big question I think will be how and whether the notion of an ecosystem for money requires changes in the regulatory ecosystem too. And whether the traditional tools of economic statecraft will be able to respond to the novel risks and rewards of state backed tokenized fiat currencies. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at ChrisBrummerDR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of FiscalNote, a global technology and media company.